Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Okay, I want to get through this next uh, section as quickly as we can. I want to finish it tonight for sure, so that next week we begin on the making of the King James Bible. There's a lot of information there to cover. Okay, now this next section is going to be forerunners to the KJD. These are English versions that came before the King James Bible. Now you got to kind of separate this from the Textus Receptus work we've just been doing. So we moved from the manuscripts scattered all over the world to the Textus Receptus, and now the Bible is compiled, the New Testament is compiled into one book. Now we're going to switch gears. We're going to set the Textus Receptus aside for a second, and we're going to look at English versions throughout history. This will lead us up to the making of the King James Bible. All right? Number one, Cadmon, 680. This man was in the monastery at Whitby in northern England. So we're, we're going all the way back to 680 in northern England. And he was in a monastery where he learned, he learned several what we would call stories from the Bible. So he, he may have learned um, about Noah's Ark, and he may have learned about creation, and he may have learned about you know, Jesus raising people from the dead. And so he, he remembered all this information, and he put together, uh, in some form of English, it, it probably would have been Anglo-Saxon, which is... It's like the forerunner to English. Um, but he put together, you can't really call it a Bible, but, but it, he put together biblical stories in what is called alliterative verse. Who knows what it means to alliterate? All right, so to alliterate, all right, so preachers do it. It drives me crazy. I wish they wouldn't, but they didn't ask me, so... Um, if you alliterate a sermon, then all your topics start with the same letter or the same word. 
You know, it's, it's, that's called an alliterated sermon. So if you're going to teach about, you know, you have three points. And one is prophecy, power, and sure, poverty. Because the Bible addresses poverty so much. All right, so that, that would be your three alliterative, you know, topics. And then you'd have your, your sermon notes underneath and your points to prove these three. These three. It's usually really cheesy. It's, most of the time, those sermons have no depth to them. And, and one of the reasons for that is, in order to make every word have the same letter at the beginning, you usually have to make up the words, which means <laughs> it rarely ever fits this way from the Bible. You usually have to make it fit. So you end up making your sermon say something that it really doesn't say. And so um, they're usually weak and shallow and just boring. And they drive me up the wall, but some people like it. So, And it's commonly used in preaching today. So he, he, he took stories and he put those stories in a literative verse. And this was one of the first attempts of any sort of Bible in the English language, all, going all the way back to 680. That, that's pretty incredible. Um, now, even better, who's ever heard of the Venerable Bede? So a man named Bede. And he's called Venerable Bede. I don't believe that's his name. I think Venerable part was just added there. What are you grinning at? Bede. If you write bed day on your paper, I'll tell you. <laughs> he was 672 to 735. He was a notable scholar of his day, and he wrote numerous commentaries on the Bible. And he translated the Gospel of John uh, to Anglo-Saxon. The Venerable Bede. Now this next guy is someone that every Christian should know about. King Alfred. King Alfred was an incredible man. The area that is England, they were Saxons. And so at some point they became Anglo-Saxons and their language is the Anglo-Saxon language. If you, if you hear, so in, in England it's not as bad. It, it, there, there is a form of English in England. If you heard them speak it, you would have no clue what they were saying. Right? But if you went to Ireland or Wales, it's ten times worse. And that they have, it's, it's a form of English, but it's their own, it's Welsh. <laughs> and you won't have a clue what they're saying. Right? And so it's, anyways, so early on, this is what they spoke. And this is who they were in that, in that region of the world. Uh, all right, so now King Alfred translated several portions of scripture into, into, Anglo, into the Anglo-Saxon Saxon language. Now, the reason he did this 
is he believed it would strengthen his kingdom if they had God's word in their own language. That's a good king to have. His most notable work was a translation of the Ten Commandments and the Psalms. Translated into the Anglo-Saxon language. So that'd be a good king to have. Oh, yes. Um, 848 to 901. Now we're going to jump way ahead to 1384 with John Wycliffe. Now, this is not the guy driving a Toyota around here that's tall and has the funniest laugh I've ever heard in my life. Uh, That's not who we're talking about. He translated the Latin Bible into English. All right, so now we're we're speaking English. It's no longer Anglo-Saxon. Um, and he went. He took it from Latin to English. His New Testament appeared in 1380. His Old Testament in 1382. After his death, a man named John Purvey edited his work, improved it, and then reprinted it. Now, the next man we're going to talk about. Now, I've told you, I've mentioned this next person a couple of times, and um, he's just an incredible figure in Christian history, and um, we're, we're going to talk quite a bit about him right now. And his name is William Tyndale. Every, every, every Christian should be very familiar with William Tyndale. So he lived 1484 to 1536. He is said to have produced the first printed English Bible. He studied at Oxford and Cambridge. He got a Bachelor of Arts in 1506. He was made Master of Arts in 1515. You're going to find, as we look at these King James translators, including William Tyndale, they were so brilliant, they would graduate college, and that college immediately grabbed them and tried to keep them there. Because they wanted them working there, teaching there. I mean, these these are not... This is not somebody who came, went to school, and got a B. These are... Unbelievably brilliant minds. And William Tyndale is among them. Uh, He had a master's of arts, which allowed him to start studying theology. This angered him very much. Because, uh, so you'll see as we go through this, um, the official course did not include (laughs) systematic study of Scripture. So getting the master's allowed him to then start studying theology in school But getting his master's, through the course of studying his master's, there was no study of of theology. He wanted to learn the Bible. And he wanted to learn it from great minds and and the people at the school. And you couldn't do that the way that they had things set up. Um, Tyndale later complained, They have ordained that no man shall look on the scripture 
until he is modeled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of understanding of the Scripture. So he says they make you go through eight, nine years of learning and they teach you to be a pagan and they, and they ruin your ability to understand the Bible. Then they want to teach you the Bible. That's Why would you go to a school like that? Now, for them, that's the only option they had. But that's not the only option you have. He was a gifted linguist and became fluent over the years in, let me write these down. So he became fluent. Who knows what it means when you're fluent in a language? It is your language. You know it. You speak it. You can think it. You can read it. You can write it. It's, it's, it's in your head. All right. Let's see what he was fluent in. French. Greek, Hebrew, Italian, Latin, and Spanish. He was fluent in all those languages. You could drop that man anywhere those languages are spoken, and he could immediately switch and start speaking. Well, We're going to learn about Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews was fluent in 15 languages. Now, if you, this is how I want you to think about this. These men were involved in translating your King James Bible. So who are you going to listen to? A man like that or a man who opens a Greek dictionary and says, I, I just don't think that word goes there. I think I'm going to use this word instead of that word. A man, a man, a man today who doesn't know two languages, most Americans only speak English and they don't even speak English well. Right? We... we we learn a new language in, in school, but when I say we learn it, you pass the test and then you leave the class and all you remember is, what is your name? <laughs> That's it. You don't remember anything else because you didn't learn the language, you just passed the test. And so the average American only speaks English, doesn't know any of these other languages, couldn't read a Greek text if you gave it to him and gave him 10 years to try and read it. But they think they can open the Bible and tell you, well, God made a mistake here. So I'm going to get out my Strong's Concordance, look up the word, and tell you the mistake that I think this man made. Now, do you want to hear my rendering from Greek to English, or do you want to hear his rendering from Greek to English? Yeah, that'd be a wise choice. You want to hear what I have to say about Hebrew to English? Or do you want to go to the man who was fluent in Hebrew and English and find out what he has to say? Yeah, I'm going to go with this one. And so you've got to have a high level of personal arrogance to be able to say, I'm going to defy William Tyndale and the 47 King James translators who were just like him. And I'm going to tell you, God's people, that those men made a mistake, but I'm here to tell you what the actual what the actual reading should be. Between 1517 and 1521, he went to the University of Cambridge. All right, this is an important date. 1517 to 1521, he went to Cambridge. All right. While he was there, he took a, a, a course in Greek And the previous teacher at Cambridge who taught Greek 
there, who taught there was a man named Erasmus. From 1511 to 1512, he basically built their, their Greek program there. So Tyndale comes in in 1517, right on the heels of Erasmus establishing this program at Cambridge College. And so the people that Erasmus left behind that are teaching him are going to be teaching him what Erasmus believed about the Bible, about translation, about, about all, these, all these things, which is very influential, very important. While Erasmus did not personally teach him, he learned much from Erasmus and his contemporaries. Tyndale became chaplain of the home of a man named Sir John Walsh. Now, if you have a chaplain in your home, what does that mean for you? It means you got a lot of money, you got a big home, and you have a lot of influence. Who just imagine if you came to my house and you're like, oh, who, who's that guy? Oh, that's my chaplain. He's the chaplain for my home. So he didn't just have a home. He had a fortune. <laughs> and he fell in love with William Tyndale, and it really helped William Tyndale a lot because William Tyndale did not hold back when it came to dealing with the Roman Catholic Church. And so Sir John Walsh and his influence kept William Tyndale out of as much trouble as it could. Uh, but eventually they had to send him away because the Catholic Church was going to kill him. Uh, he also tutored their children, the, the children of Sir John Walsh. His opinions proved controversial to fellow clergymen. And the next year, he was summoned before John Bell. John Bell. This is where trouble really starts for William Tyndale. Um, so this was, he's staying with this family in 1521, around this time period, 1521. All right, so... He's called before John Bell, and John Bell is the Chancellor of the Diocese of Worcester. Uh, that's a famous word in Roman Catholicism terms, which means he had a lot of power. And when he summoned you, you had to come. You, you know, if a Catholic priest summoned me today, I would say, send him a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not coming. I don't care. But when they summoned you in that day, you came. If you didn't, you and your entire family were going to die. And you were not just going to die. They were going to make sure you died in the most brutal and disgusting way possible. These were some of the, the most sick and twisted people history has. I don't know how anybody could ever, with a good conscience, in any way associate with the Catholic Church. Between the way they violate children and their history of murdering people in the most brutal and sadistic ways, why would you have anything to do with that, that, that organization? Same is true for, for Islam. Like, you shall know them by their fruits. Okay, What are they known for? Killing. And killing innocent people. It's not like they get an army together and go, and go fight the U.S. government or the U.S. military. No, they're going, to walk into, they're going to walk into a coffee bar and kill people who have absolutely nothing to do with whatever is going on in their, in their twisted head. So, you know, you just, I don't understand how people could, with a good conscience, associate with any of these organizations, but, but they do. Um, so he's summoned before John Bell, 
After the meeting with Bell and other church leaders, Tyndale had an argument. What they learned, this is the way, this is the way he described it. I had an argument with a learned but blasphemous clergyman. <laughs> said the man is smart, but he's a blasphemer. This clergyman said, now pay attention. All right, next time you're talking to your Roman Catholic friend and you're trying to tell them about Jesus, this is their thinking. Now, this low-level Roman Catholic may not know this is the thinking, but this is Roman Catholicism, summed up in one sentence. This clergyman said, we had better be without God's laws than the Pope's. So you can get rid of this. I don't care about this as long as I've got a Pope. And that, that is the summary of Roman Catholicism. You do what the Pope says, you don't do what the Bible says. If you want to do what the Bible says, as long as it doesn't interfere with what the Pope told you to do, then it's okay. Now, here's Tyndale's response. And it was very level-headed and very cool and very measured and very careful. Or it was none of that. <laughs> Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years... I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. He said, I'm going to make sure a plow boy knows more of the Bible than you do. If God lets me live long enough. And he knew, he knew making that statement. He knew what what it was going to cause. And and he told that man, if God spares my life, I'll make sure that they have the Bible in 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 their own language. And... From there, it did not go well for William Tyndale. He was tried on a charge of heresy in 1536 and found guilty and condemned to be burned to death. But that wouldn't be good enough. You can't just burn someone alive. They strangled him and then burned his dead body. Tyndale was strangled to death while tied at the stake. Then his dead body was burned. His final words spoken at the stake. Now, this is the way uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've never read it, you should find a copy of it and you should read it as often as you can. Um, This is how they record his last words. It says, at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice. This is what he said. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So Tyndale's on the run for two reasons. The King of England won't give him permission to print this English Bible. And the Roman Catholic Church won't give him permission to print this English Bible. And one of those has to give you permission or you're not printing the Bible. So he had to run. He had to leave England and he went to Europe. He fled to Europe and he found refuge in Europe. He translated his Bible in Europe and then ended up being printed in Europe and smuggled back into England. They would put it in bread and bring it into England like it was drugs. <laughs> I mean, imagine if that's the only way you could get a Bible. Would you care? I mean, it's, it's, we have it so good. You can save your money, go down to the store, and just buy a copy. Well, you can't do that in North Korea. Our church used to support a missionary who used to smuggle Bibles into North Korea. He used to go into North Korea, an American, would go into North Korea and, and get Bibles to those people. Somehow he mysteriously ended up dead. Perfectly healthy, 
worked out every day, ran, ran a couple miles every day. I mean, it was just a very smart, very intelligent, very careful. Somehow he mysteriously ended up dead. And all he was doing was taking Bibles into North Korea. There are churches in North Korea. In your house in North Korea, you have a radio that is required to be there. And it plays propaganda from, from the government. And it has to play constantly. You cannot turn it off. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll meet in their homes. You think you have it bad. <laughs> I mean, if you could have Kim Jong-un or Musevene, you better take Musevene. Every day, every time, every day, your lives are great compared to people in North Korea. And, and so people there that are saved, you're not allowed to be saved. It's against the law. You'll be thrown into a concentration camp. Kind of like China's doing with the Uyghur Muslims right now. They're trying to re- retrain their, their, their thinking. So they're locked in concentration camps and they're, and they're subject to slavery. And they stay there and they have to be, they have to be re-educated so that, that if they can show they're going to buy into communism, they can be released back out into China. If not, you stay there and, you, and you're a servant or a slave or you die. And it's happening right now and the whole world knows it's happening and nobody's doing anything about it. Because nobody wants to stop getting cheap stuff from China. So you're going to let an entire group of people be tortured in and, and concentration camps so you can keep getting cheap stuff. This is what these people do, and this is what's happening here. And they start printing his Bible in Europe, and they're trying to get it back into England, and they have to smuggle it into England. Now, who in England would do that today? England is almost completely secular. It could care less about God. England has almost completely turned its back on God. Who in England? I mean, this was a massive process. People were spending, high-level people with lots of money were spending their money to try and smuggle Bibles back into England that were printed by William Tyndale in Europe. Who would do that in England today? They don't care. You'd be hard-pressed to find people in America to do it. Now, America still... It's it's hanging on, but it's fading fast. And who knows in 20, 30 years, what maybe 50 years, what America is going to look like. Europe has given up on God. It's over for Europe. Right now, the gospel is spreading fast in Africa, the Philippines, and South Korea. That's where everybody's that's where that's where the gospel is just spreading like wildfire. Now, the problem in Africa is people will get saved, but none of them are coming to church. None of them want to live the Christian life. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that so I can escape hell. Okay, will you be at church Sunday? No. You just learned that this person died for you so you can escape hell, and all they want you to do is come to church and listen to the Bible for an hour or two, and you can't do that? Now i got to wash my socks or something. So it's, you know, I hope you understand how precious what you have is. It's incredible. It's incredible that colonial powers took over the world and Uganda happened to be colonized by an English-speaking country. And because of that, you can read the perfect word of God in English. Well, the Spanish-speaking people can't say that. If you had German, if Germany took over your country, you might be able to get your hands on a Luther Bible, but Germany's not, 
Germany's not exporting the Bible. Germany doesn't care. The only, for, for, for the most part, the only country in the world that is exporting the Bible is America. Now, you might find the Filipinos are doing it. You might find that South Korea is doing it. But on a massive scale, what was the last time you saw China bring a shipping container like Brother Keith does full of Bibles? Or John and Romans? It's not happening. It's American missionaries that are doing these things, and that's dying. It's fading. It's, it's, it's disappearing. So I hope you know how precious what you have is, and I hope you, you, you will cling to it in that way. All right. That's enough about that. He was tried in charge of heresy. His final words were, open the, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He, he, he had this back and forth with the king of England. They wrote letters back and forth to each other, and, um, and, and they were debating and discussing whether they should allow the, the, the Bible to be, uh, to, be, to be printed or not, and it just wasn't going in Tyndale's favor. In the spring of 1524, William Tyndale visited Hamburg and Wittenberg. In that same time, so while he's in Hamburg and Wittenberg, so this is 1524, that he travels to these com- countries, uh, to these areas, he translates, uh, let me see what I put here, um, the New Testament from Greek to English. So while traveling in this part of Europe, now, who, who, was, in, who was notable that was in Wittenberg? Somebody nailed 95 theses to the front door of the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg. Martin Luther. So now he's having these interactions with these different people and these different ideas, and it all has a big influence on him. Um, 18,000 copies of his translated New Testament were distributed throughout England. So they were somehow able to print and smuggle 18,000 copies of, of his New Testament back into England. In 1530 to 1531, he published portions of the Old Testament, translated from Hebrew into English. So 1530 to 1531, the Old Testament from Hebrew to English. In 1534, he published an updated version of his Old and New Testament work. And then in 1535, he was betrayed and arrested in in 1535, then executed in 1536. Then in 1611, after seven years of work, 47 scholars who produced the King James Version drew extensively from Tyndale's translations and his other works. Now listen to this, all right? The King James translators, all right? So we're, we're several years, from 1536 when he died to 1611, the King James translators used William Tyndale's work to create the King James Bible. Now listen to this. The New Testament, so the KJV The New Testament, make sure I get my numbers right, 83% of the the King James Bible is William Tyndale's work. Of the Old Testament, 
of our King James Old Testament is the work that William Tyndale did. Now, imagine this. You're a single man by yourself on the run, and you're able to get the New Testament 83% correct, and you're able to get the Old Testament 76% correct, at least what, what you were able to accomplish. He didn't finish the Old Testament before he died. So... This makes up the majority of your, of your King James Bible. So your translators didn't, the translators didn't just use the Textus Receptus, and they didn't just use the Masoretic Text. They had, a, they had an abundance of material at their fingertips to use to get it right. And they relied heavily on Tyndale's work. Now, a man who can get, who can go from, Greek to English by himself while on the run trying to get away from Roman Catholic murderers was able to get it 83% correct. That's pretty good. I mean, that is unbelievable. After William Tyndale produced his English version, or what, what portions of it he was able to produce, a number of English Bibles came out that led up to uh, the King James Bible. So after William Tyndale, a host of English Bibles would be produced. 1535, you have the Coverdale Bible, produced by Miles Coverdale. He used the Latin Vulgate, German versions, and William Tyndale's versions to produce his Bible. Um, In 1537, and this just became like a race. uh, It just happened quickly, quickly, quickly. Um, 1537, a close friend of William Tyndale, his name is John Rogers. John Rogers used a pen name. Anybody remember what that's called? Anyone want to try to repeat that word? <laughs> no, that, the other word. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, he used a pen name, Thomas Matthew. And under that pen name, he produced the Matthew's Bible. The Matthews Bible contained the Old and New Testament of William Tyndale, but he used the Coverdale Bible. So he took the Old Testament from this Bible, from the Coverdale Bible, uh, to fill in the portions of the Old Testament that Tyndale did not finish. So he used it to complete the Old Testament. And it became known as the Matthews Bible. All right, now 1539. (laughs) Coverdale again. He is commissioned by Thomas Chamberlain to update the Matthews Bible. So you see how, I mean, this is, is all getting, everybody's in this rush to, to finish the work that Tyndale uh, started. And, I mean, we, we assume they're, 
motives were good, but it, it, it just became like a mad dash. Um, the new edition was so large, it came to be known as the Great Bible. The new edition was established as the official Bible of the Church of England. There were two revisions of the Great Bible during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. 1560 and 1568. So by the time we get to the Great Bible, I mean, it has to be pretty close to being a good Bible, assuming that, you know, Thomas Chamberlain and Coverdale did things right. Now, the first thing that bothers me about Coverdale is this. Why did he use the Latin Vulgate? Um, Tyndale, as far as I know, did not. And, and so uh, it just seems like you're going in the wrong direction when you do that. But if he left, when he came to do the update to the Matthews Bible, which was basically Tyndale's Bible, if he left it alone, then you've got a pretty, you're getting pretty close to a good Bible, but you're not there yet. You know, you have these individuals doing the best they can to put a Bible together, and, and it's, it's getting close, but we're just not quite there. Um, so those are the two revisions. The second revision changed the name again. It came to be known as the Bishop's Bible. So all these Bibles basically belong to one person. William Tyndale. They're all kind of riding on the back of William Tyndale. Except Miles Coverdale. He, he made his own Bible, but nobody, nobody wanted to use it. And then John Rogers comes out with the Matthews Bible. And then Thomas Chamberlain says, let's update the Matthews Bible. And it came to be known as the Great Bible. Then there were two revisions to it, and it ended up being changed to the Bishop's Bible. In 1582... The Church of England translated the Latin Vulgate into English. In 1609, they translated the Old Testament. And this version came to be known as the Douay. This is basically an English Catholic Bible. And it was called the Douay version because it was prepared at Douay at Flounders, which was a great center for English Catholicism at the time. All right, I'm going to try. We got 15 minutes. This is a very important topic. Now, very, 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 very important. Hampton's Court Conference. This is where your Bible, the idea for your Bible came alive. In 1604, the King of England held this conference reluctantly. He really didn't want to. It was held at the Hampton Court Palace, which is located on the River Thames in uh, southwest of London. The conference was held at Hampton Court within one year of King James VI of Scotland. All right, this is important information. So, King James 
the sixth of Scotland became King James the first of England. All right, so what this means is he was the king of Scotland, and then through certain course of events, whoever held the throne in England, he was also successor to that throne. So whoever held that throne died, and I believe it was Elizabeth. I believe it was Queen Elizabeth before him. Uh, she died or was removed. Or some, so there were some issues with Queen Elizabeth. I don't remember the full story. But he became not only king of Scotland, he is now also king of England. All right? That th- those countries have troubled history. Um, all right, so at this conference, the new king intended to deal with many subjects of importance. A new translation of the Bible was not one of those subjects. So th- this meeting, and we're going to talk about it, but I- I'll, just, I'll just frame it for you real quick. Um, the-, the Church of England, if you wanted to be a, a recognized church in England, you had to be part of the Church of England. You had to. There were no other choice. So within the Church of England, you had the bishops and you had the Puritans. The Puritans, the kings, the kings said they were radicals. I mean, they believe the Bible. They, they, you know, they don't want, they don't want government over them. They don't, I mean, they just, they're just a bunch of fundamental Bible believing Christians. And and he didn't like that. The bishops were, some of them were fundamental and Bible believing, but they were, they were more lenient towards the idea of the king running the church. The Puritans were not okay with that idea. In fact, the Puritans are the people who left England and went to the Americas and started what came to be known as the United States of America because of this situation in England where they're, they're under, the, the church is under the rule of the government. You don't have freedom of religion. So they go to America and they establish colonies, which became a country where you have freedom of religion. It's enshrined into our constitution, which is just a little extra information there. So the king was not excited about talking to the Puritans. He didn't want to deal with them, but he had to. He kind of kind of had to bring this meeting together. Uh, so not only did he not want to talk to the Puritans, he had no intention of talking about a Bible whatsoever. He was basically going to tell them, I'm the king. This is what you're going to do. Get to it. He was basically going to set things in order. That was his intention. Now, this time, certain Puritans within the Church of England were pressing the new king for reform. Since King Henry VIII, the king of England, was head of the Church of England. And therefore, decisions regarding change must come from the king. So King James was presented with what came to be known as the millinery petition. Millinery meaning 1,000. It was a petition that was supposed to have 1,000 signatures on it, but ended up having far more than that. Uh, he just became king of England, and they give him this petition. <laughs> and it's full of changes they would like to see, humbly like to see, because you're dealing with a king. You don't get to say, you need to fix this. You get to say, you know, you're sovereign, you're great, you're wonderful, your majesty. If, if you would just think on me for just a moment and consider... You had to be very careful because he could just say, take him and kill him. He's the king. What, what did God say to Israel when they said they wanted a king? He will take your sons and he will take your daughters. And there is nothing you're going to do about it. Are you sure you want a king? They said, we want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. All right, here's Saul. 
never mind, can we have somebody else? <laughs> and uh, so it doesn't work that way. All right, so the king is head of the church, and that's it. And he, he gets this petition. This petition had signatures of more than 1,000 Puritans who laid out several charges they hoped to see within the Church of England. Changes, not charges. The Puritans laid out their grievances in the millinery petition and then asked for a conference with the king to discuss their desired re- reformation. Now, this is interesting. They get their meeting, but the king says, I'm not going to see you alone. I'm going to bring the bishops who can kind of counter what you're saying. And they get nothing that's on this petition. The king says no to everything. But randomly, John Reynolds asks about translating the Bible, and that's the only thing the king said yes to. Everything else that's on this petition, which translating a Bible, is not on the petition. It just happened to come up in conversation. John Reynolds asked about it, and the king, the king accepted. You tell me God had nothing to do with that. So King James wanted to be viewed as tolerant and religious. You know, he wanted to be, he wanted to present himself as favorable to the religious man, as long as you did what he said. King James was well-versed in religious ideologies and fully capable of handling ideological differences. The king was opposed to the Puritans in general. He considered them to be religious radicals, but he was willing to hear them out. Finally, the conference was held January 14, 16, and 18 of 1604. Several of the men who attended Hampton Court Conference were later chosen to be translators of the King James Bible, both Puritans and bishops on both sides. Representing the Puritans at the conference, you know, these, other, these names are here, but I'm just going to give you the main one, the one you need to remember mostly. John Reynolds. This is interesting. Michael was asking me about names. This is a tribal name, Reynolds. This is the way it's spelled today. But it's the same word, same, same background, same people. But his name is John Reynolds, and um, there's some other names here. You'll get my notes, so you can you can see that. But that's the man who just happened to mention to the king, "We kind of need a new Bible," and the king accepted. So everything else they asked for, the king said, "No, we're not doing any of that," and was pretty harsh with them. He was pretty sharp and and telling them no. John John Reynolds was president of Corpus Christi College. At Oxford. Now, when I say president, I mean on the translation team. All right, so he became one of the presidents of one of the teams that came to do the translation work. Um, He was the key figure in presenting the king with the idea of a new translation of the Bible. It has been said of John Reynolds, he alone was a well-furnished library. That that's his mental, his intellectual ability. When somebody wanted to say something about John Reynolds, they said he's a walking library. <laughs> but they didn't stop there. Full of faculties, of all studies, of all learning, the memory and the reading of that man were near to a miracle. That, that's the history that's left behind with John Reynolds. And we're going to look at just a few of the translators, okay? Now again... Do you want to hear me tell you what God should have said in this Bible, or do you want to hear a man like that tell you what God said? I mean, I don't think I'm stupid, 
But nobody's going to say of me that I'm, I'm a walking library yeah. full of all learning. <laughs> so I, I, I'll trust this guy. Nobody is going to say of me, my memory is horrible. I had a, a, an accident in the military. I have what, what they believe is called a, a closed-minded injury. I fell out of the back of a moving truck at 45 miles per hour and landed face first on the asphalt. So it ripped the entire left side of my face up. It tore my shoulder up, my, my left hip and, 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 and knee. And so the impact of that, they think, caused damage to my brain. And, and they think the reason I have a terrible memory is because of, because of that. So nobody's going to be saying of me that my memory is near to a miracle. <laughs> Just not going to happen. So... Uh, he was at odds with the at odds with the Puritans were the bishops. So they they were kind of pit against each other. The bishops were more favorable to the king. The Puritans were not, but they all had to operate under the king under the the Church of England. This conference was meant to bring two sides together and resolve some of their differences. The bishops were joined by nine deans. The most notable of these deans is another name you need to remember: Lancelot Andrews. And we're going to talk about these men in more detail later. Lancelot Andrews knew 15 languages. Now, listen to this. I, 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 like, I, I, want, I, I really hope this has a deep impression on you. Once a year for one month, this man's family would take him on vacation with them. And in one month, he would learn an entire new language. Speaking, reading, writing. That's what he would do on his vacation. Then he'd go back and get back to work doing whatever it was he was working on. That's one of our translators. Who speaks 15 languages fluently and in one month would just go learn a new language. Now let me ask you again. Do you want to hear some Baptist preacher today who doesn't know a word of Greek, who doesn't speak anything other than English, you want him to tell you, well, that God, you know, this is translated incorrectly. You're going to trust that guy over this guy? Not a chance. Okay, what if you put these two together? John Reynolds and Lancelot Andrews alone had enough brilliance to be able to produce you a, a pretty incredible Bible. I would take the word of those two men alone before I would take some ridiculous Baptist preacher today standing in a pulpit telling you that he knows better what the Greek should be than those men. All right, so that's Lancelot Andrews was dean of Westminster. He was overall of St. Paul's. He was Montague of the Chapel Royale, Abbot of Winchester, Ravis of Christ Church, Eads of Worcester, Thomas of Windsor, and Gordon of Salisbury. These are all separate titles. He was either preaching somewhere or teaching at a university, and he, was, uh, he worked directly for the king. These are all separate positions that required his full-time work. And he's able to manage it all and translate a Bible like it's nothing. <laughs> On the second day of the conference, John Reynolds presented the king with the, with the, with the idea of a new translation of the Bible. He informed the king that existing translations were riddled with error and that an accurate copy of God's word was necessary. John Reynolds cited several examples of errors in the current English Bibles. The king responded by telling him 
He could never believe a Bible would be accurately translated into English. So then he commissioned men to translate it. <laughs> he sounds like your average Baptist today. I could never believe we have an English Bible that's perfect. Yeah, I know, your life shows it. <laughs> then the king discussed several notes in the Geneva Bible that bothered him. So based upon his distaste for these notes, remember we talked about this. This is saying, so in the Geneva Bible, you had your verse here, and then you had all the notes under the verse. So this is verse 1. Then you get to verse 2 down here because you got paragraphs of notes. Then you get to the verse 2, and you got a whole bunch more notes. And the king is saying, I can't stand that. I, you know, the Geneva Bible is terrible, according to him. And so based on his distaste for those notes... He agreed to a new and full translation of the English Bible. That's all it took. It was for him to be aggravated with notes. And so he says, all right, let's translate the Bible. And it ended up being one of the greatest undertakings the world has ever seen. One of the, the, the most incredible tasks ever accomplished. And so... Now we are talking about your King James Bible from this point on. We're going to start Monday with the competence translators. So I picked one translator from each group. All right. The, the way, so you have, I know we don't have time for this, but you have Westminster, you have Cambridge. And you have Oxford. Each college had two groups. And each group was given a portion of the scripture to translate. And we're going to talk about this. Um, and so the translators came from these, these places. Either they were associated with the church or the university or, 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 or whatever. And so they were called out to, to, be, to, to translate the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick one from each group and take a look at them, just a very brief look at them. Uh, on my podcast, I'm going to put a full, in-depth write-up on them for, with all the information I can get together. But for the sake of this class and time, we're going to look very briefly at a few of these men. And you're going to see how incredible they were. And then you get to take that, and, and when you hear somebody today say, well, the King James translators made a mistake here, you can laugh in their face. I say, really? Lancelot Andrews? You think you know better than Lancelot Andrews? You think you know better than John Reynolds, a walking library of all learning who had a memory that was ne ne nearly a miracle? I mean, if, you, if you're better than that, I need to know so we can get to know you and figure out what it is you have to say. But if you're not, then shut up. So that's what we will venture into next week. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. 
please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.